Friends, thank you so much for worshiping this morning. My name is Adam, and I love being the senior pastor at First United Methodist Church. Uh, This morning's topic is uh, an uncomfortable one, but I'm proud to be part of a church that talks about what's really going on uh, in our community, in the real world, and how we can live the way that God calls us to. Um, Every day, there's headlines of racial issues uh, around our our nation and, and even in our own community. And, and sometimes it's like, well, what, what can we possibly do? Or, oh gosh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that was still happening. And so the, the topic of race is an important one. Uh, it's a very pressing one. And ironically, it wasn't until I spent some time out of our country uh, that I began to wonder more about what was going on in our country. I've led teams to the Dominican Republic eight different times uh, as a youth pastor. It's a beautiful place. I miss my friends there. And uh, I li- uh, we lived and worked at this Dominican camp uh, most of the times that, that we were there. And the children of the staff would, would play together and they'd be around and, and they'd play with us. So I want to introduce you to Johansson on the right and Jessica on the left, their cousins, uh, so sweet, uh, or at least Jessica was. Uh, Johansson would always call me Gordo, and I'll let you look that up online as to what that means. Uh, <laughs> Johansson uh, wasn't, wasn't the nicest child, uh, but we had a good time. Uh, the Dominican Republic shares an island with Haiti, and that's where our church has been involved for a long time. I look forward to uh, traveling there later this summer. Uh, the history of the island of Hispaniola is both fascinating and tragic. The Dominican side was colonized by the Spanish and the Haitian side by the French. Both European countries used religion as an excuse to mine the island for its resources and imported slaves in addition to enslaving the natives. Uh, Now the the Dominicans emphasize their Spanish heritage and their indigenous heritage, while the Haitians embrace their African heritage. So, fast forward 500 years or so, Yawansen is Dominican, Jessica is Haitian. Yawansen, at six years old, already knew all the Haitian slurs to call his cousin. Uh, this was heartbreaking. These two children, they're, they're cousins, they're family. They've been shaped by the history of that island, by the colonial activity for centuries has affected how they interact where two nations enslaved the same island and then set them against each other. In a weird and sad way, I almost found relief in this discovery of of the nature of Yawansen and Jessica's relationship and how he referred to his cousin. And I know that sounds strange to say, but for the first time as an adult, I understood that racism is not a uniquely American problem and it's certainly not limited to just a black and white problem. Racism is a human problem, and it is sin. What is a uniquely American problem is when we as Americans ignore our past history and our current reality, as if racism is something that as a a society we've moved beyond. A lot of times, I as a white person am still totally unaware of the struggles uh, that people face every day. My guess is most of us have driven on J.C. Nichols Parkway, named after real estate magnate J.C. Nichols. Uh, He developed the Country Club Plaza, as well as other developments in Mission Hills and and Prairie Village, Kansas. Uh, He was an innovator. Nichols' uh, methods and and approach to real estate had a huge impact on his industry 
and, and the way he planned his developments. And, and that uh, had, had effects nationwide uh, in the mid 20th century. Uh, but what he also, uh, he, he, he employed, he didn't invent this, but he made use of it. It was a tactic called racial deed covenants. He was among the first uh, to leverage deed covenants for uh, racial purposes. So think about the perverse use of that term, a covenant. This is a religious word. This is, this is a promise that two parties make. Uh, and especially in the Old Testament, uh, we see God making covenants with people. Uh, Jesus uh, at the Last Supper says, I'm making a new covenant with you. Right? And so think about the twisting of this concept. Covenants are what God made with people, and that term came to be used uh, to keep black people out. Racial deed covenants. That's one of the reasons it's so important that we discuss race in a religious context. Because our history has linked racism and religion together. So embedded in the plan for these neighborhoods, these developments, was the provision that the house could only be sold to a white person. This is what the restrictive deed covenant language sounds like. So this was a newspaper story in the KC Star from 2016 in the Greenway Fields Homeowners Association rules. None of said lots shall be conveyed to, used, owned, nor occupied by Negroes as owner or tenants. And because of the nature of these covenants is, is expensive to alter and, and legally complex, it's very difficult to change. So according to the KC Star article, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development began requiring title companies to cross out the restrictions on copies of covenants or otherwise delete them. And this was in the 1980s. The 1980s, not 1880s, not 1780s, the 1980s. That was, that, it was that recently that this type of thing was still embedded in the language of real estate contracts. This is just one example of how, how racism is embedded in our communities, and, and we just can't pretend like it's not. I had a friend whose family member was buying a house, and when the seller saw that one of the parties was not white, they raised the price. And that was this century. So this isn't a new thing, uh, and, and it's not a thing in the past. Housing is just one example of how systematic oppression uh, affects people's lives in very real ways. Restrictive deed covenants are, are one example of institutional racism. These are large system scale, uh, uh, excuse me, large scale systems of oppression based on race. But the problem isn't just a non-personal institutional one. Like it's the system, man. Uh, the problem is also with each of us and that we all have discriminatory instincts and behaviors. And, and part of the message today is I, I want you to be like, well, gosh, I don't because I didn't think I did either. Uh, but when we drill down a little bit, we might not like what we find. Uh, one of my very best friends, his name is Mark. He's the pastor at Good Shepherd United Methodist. And we've been friends for a long time. And many years ago, he invited my wife, Sarah, and I out over for dinner. And he said, oh, it's gonna be awesome. My wife, Janela, is making tacos. Now, his wife, Janela, is from Venezuela. And so I was like, ooh, gonna get me some Venezuelan tacos. And I had this image of Janela, like, you know, really 
spending a bunch of time preparing the meal with like some recipe for Venezuelan tacos brought down from the mountains from her ancestors, right? And, and I was all excited. And don't I feel foolish when we get there and my friend Janela serves the same old El Paso stuff that my family's been eating every week since I was little. Now, we laughed about it because my friend Janela is very gracious. But even if you're not racist, it's still very possible and very likely that we have racially biased thoughts. So what happened there? I made an assumption because of Janela's nationality uh, that was based on a stereotype. I assumed that every country south of the United States loves tacos and makes tacos and consumes tacos as much as I do. Janela had actually never had a taco until she came to the United States. No one in Venezuela eats tacos. Now, this is a safe story to share, uh, and, and one that I have permission to share also. Uh, but this is an example of what happens uh, in small ways and large ways a lot more than we probably think. The Bible speaks of the dangers of treating people with bias based on appearances. The book of James gives very straightforward practical advice on the types of people God expects us to be. And, and it was written to an audience that was uh, kind of grappling with the tension between uh, what was very early on a Jewish religion, but was now expanding to include people of other nationalities. So that was in the mix for them as well. Now, what we're going to read is primarily based on discrimination due to economics, but it still speaks to our habit of showing favoritism based on someone's exterior. So this is from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 8 and 9. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or, or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, so my goal with this message is, is to help all of us understand that when it comes to racism, we still have a long way to go, both culturally and personally. Uh, these questions from James force us to kind of confront some tough things. Uh, the first one uh, that, that we read, do you, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? You cannot profess to follow Jesus and engage in this behavior. They do not go together at all. They are mutually exclusive. If you believe in Jesus, you cannot uh, uh, have this type of behavior exist. One eliminates the existence of the other. The second question that these verses make us confront, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I don't know anybody, I don't know one person who if asked, hey, are you a racist? Would be like, absolutely, yes, total racist. I'm hoping to get racist on my license plate. Like, I don't know anyone who would respond that way. But if you really get down to the ways that we each make ourselves a judge based on the exterior of other people, Based on their race, I can't imagine many people who are totally exempt. 
James said, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Friends, we have to face the reality that we haven't arrived in in terms of racial reconciliation. Uh, It's an ongoing struggle. It's a problem in our community and in our own minds. We cannot do verse 8 until we admit verse 9. Priest and author Richard Rohr said this, and I just love it. We cannot heal what we do not first acknowledge. I went to a conference several years ago and I was, I was listening to a pastor named Derwin Gray speak and it had a huge impact on me and he was discussing uh, in his amazing sermon several different things among them race and he said this, white pastors, your silence on this issue is deafening. I've never forgotten that. And I used to be like, well, what do I have to say in terms of race? White dudes have, have, have been on top of the world for thousands of years. What do I have to possibly contribute? Friends, we cannot heal what we do not first acknowledge. As a white man, wherever I've gone to rent a house, I never had to worry about being treated poorly. I had no fear of being rejected because of my race. When I get dressed, I don't have a single thought that someone might judge me based on what I'm wearing, which is mostly plaid anyway. Right, that's never, I've never had to struggle with that. Right, I have virtually no experience of being treated differently because of the color of my skin. And what I want us to acknowledge, what I hope to accomplish today is, is to simply face the reality that for a lot of folks, especially folks that don't look like me, their experience of the world is vastly different than mine. That's what I'm after. I had a friend tell me once that when she was learning to drive, you can guess by the story that, that she's not a white person. When she was learning to drive, her dad told her all the stops along I-70, all the exits that she could never get off on because the KKK was still active there. Never a conversation I had to have with my dad or mom when I was driving. I have another friend, his name's Johnny, and he, he told me I could share his story as well. He was simply walking in his neighborhood as he does many mornings when, uh, uh, this was in Texas, when a car pulled over and a person started taking pictures of him because she thought he was suspicious. What was he guilty of? I believe the phrase is walking while black. No one's ever thought I was suspicious in any neighborhood I've ever been in, ever. As a majority race in our community, White folks need to acknowledge that people who are not white often have a very different experience of the world than we do. The fact that many of us are unaware of this is actually most of my point. My wife is a teacher and and she received a grant uh, not too long ago to help diversify her school library. What a great thing, right? And and it was, and this is why it was so needed, to to expand uh, the diversity of characters and, and the types of people featured in these stories of children's literature. There was a 2015 children's literature study and it was revealed that 73% of all protagonists in children's books that were released in 2015 were white. The next highest category was animals and trucks, etc., at 12.5%, which is barely less than all the other races combined. It is vital for children to see people that look like them 
doing amazing things. This has never been a problem for me, a lack of people that looked like me that, that could be my heroes. And so I was oblivious to it. And in many ways, I continue to be. So to hurting people, when we refuse to acknowledge that racism is real, it comes off as dismissive. And, 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 and people feel that their pain is negated and their experience are doubted. And it's very destructive. In December, our church building housed just a, such an important event. And it was co-led by the Kearney School District and the Department of Justice. And it was called School Spirit. And the goal was to empower students to come together and not only identify problems in their school, but also work towards solutions. It was heartbreaking to hear students being called slurs, uh, to have them recount these stories. Uh, or, or one young woman uh, described when, when she'd be out, uh, she has one parent who's white and one parent who's not. And when she was with the parent who is, is white, people ask her where she's from. Now, that, that small message just re reinforces the idea that I don't belong here, that this community is not for me because people assume I'm from somewhere else just because of the color of my skin and they think I'm adopted or whatever. Uh, but it was also inspiring to hear these students acknowledge reality and then begin to move forward when they came together to discuss some solutions with their peers. Man, I was inspired by these students. I don't want to just diagnose the problem. I don't, I don't, I'm not here to, to give you a lecture. I want to know how we can move forward with hope. So let's bring it, bring it back to Christ. What does Christ call us to do? How does Christ call us to live together? How do we represent him? So if we want to follow the royal law, as, as Jesus' own brother James described it, how do we do that? This is when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So what do we do? The first step is to admit our own biases. This is what we've spent the bulk of our time talking about today. Friends, we cannot heal what we first do not acknowledge. We ask God forgiveness for our sins of partiality, even the ones we don't do consciously, especially those. When I take count of how many stories or quotes I give of people who aren't white or who aren't dudes for that matter, like in my sermons, if you ever take some counts, uh, you know, when I read that diversity in children's literature study, I was very convicted. How often am I lifting up people who aren't white dudes like me? I don't always like the math on that that I present to you all. So I'm trying to admit my bias as well. Now there's a course you can take that can help reveal your biases. We've got some info on that. It's, this, it's, it's the Implicit Bias Study through Harvard. So you can Google that. I believe we've made that link available for you as well. And so that's, that's a step you can take is to admit your own biases. Next, we can submit to learning more. Now, I'm not talking about approaching a stranger of a different color and, and, and you know, asking to interview them or something. I, but to learn more about race, we need to be willing to seek a different perspective than our own. Right, so, so can you seek out a trusted friend and, and have a sensitive conversation? Can you get your news from a different source? Or maybe you can seek out some other podcasts that are kind of outside your social circle. What can, you, what can you kind of learn from differently that's outside of your norm with the hope of listening and learning from different voices? I'd recommend the work of Brian Stevenson. He's an amazing person. I heard him speak at a leadership summit, so inspiring. His movie, Just, excuse me, his book, Just Mercy, 
is also now a feature film. And so you can check those out. And I'd encourage you to listen to his TED Talk, We Need to Talk About Injustice. Just Google Brian Stevenson, TED Talk. Another book that could be helpful on this subject is Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. So friends, once we admit our biases and submit to learning more, we can commit to speaking up. I don't mean to be corny that they all end in mitt, but I don't know, I thought it was kind of nice. Admit, submit, commit, boom. I think that more people are at fault for doing nothing about racism than actively being racist. Friends, we cannot heal what we first do not acknowledge, but after that awareness comes the healing. Part of healing the the wounds of racism in our community is being willing to speak up. Racial slurs and stereotypes, uh, off-color racial jokes have no place in the Christian's conversations. And we need to speak up when we encounter them and other forms of racism. How do you feel when someone stands up for you? Isn't that a good feeling? We need to be willing to do that for our brothers and sisters. That's what we as Christians need to be willing to do. Martin Luther King Day was, was last month. And uh, usually you, you see all kind of quotes uh, on social media from him. And, and, and we remember his, his amazing leadership and his bravery and courage, his sacrifice, as we should. But Dr. King gave us more than images in his I Have a Dream speech of little black boys and girls playing with little white boys and girls. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he wrote this. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our greatest, our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. I I, I don't want to be a silent clergy person. There's literally a stained glass window behind me. I mean, this this quote just, just hits me right where it counts. As your pastor, I take very seriously the call to respond to the needs of our congregation, both within and without. It takes humility to admit our biases. It takes patience to submit to learning more. And it takes courage to commit to speaking up. But these are all needed if we want to follow the royal law and love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, it's been a fun two weeks hearing uh, the, the words Kansas City in the news, right, with our team in the Super Bowl. On every podcast I'm listening to, every time I turn on the TV, it's, it's just fun to hear those words in late January and early February, isn't it? That we're so proud of our team, and it, and it gives our whole community, our whole city, a sense of pride. I want our community to have a sense of pride long after the outcome of the game on Sunday. Right? My prayer is that our community would be known as a place where all people are welcomed and invited to prosper with equality. My family moved here in July of 2019 and we have been welcomed with open arms. We, we love living here. And so, so let's decide together to, to, to live 
out the call of Jesus to embody the royal law, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to help make Kearney and Holt and Excelsior and Smithville a place where everyone can have the same wonderful experience that my family has enjoyed. I was so inspired by spending time with the students in December. Now, it was not a religious event. It was called School Spirit, but friends, I felt the spirit at work because I saw a diverse group of people come together and say, let's make this thing better. And it reminded me of how Jesus called all kind of people that were so different than him to himself and how he launched them into a mission to make God's kingdom real. And so that's the opportunity we have, friends, to, 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 to acknowledge the deep pain that people have felt, but to move forward together with hope in the name of Christ as we live the way he calls us to. And so let's leave this place having admitted our biases, submitted to learning more, and committed to speaking up. Let's practice the royal law to love our neighbor as ourselves. And may God use us as instruments of healing in a hurting world because, friends, we cannot heal what we do not first acknowledge. And everybody said, amen.